0: Welcome to Beyond the Table. Beyond the Table is a podcast series produced by Tabletop Journal that profiles the heroes of the hospitality tabletop industry. From designers to manufacturers and on to the chefs who have all changed the hospitality tabletop industry in seismic ways. We hope to bring you conversations with those industry heroes whose influence will continue to be felt, not only for today, but for generations to come. Our format is conversational, and please join us as we attempt to let you get to know not only who these heroes are, but why they do the things they do, what drives them, what motivates them, and why they too share the passion that hashtag tabletop matters. Today's conversation is hosted by Dave Turner, chief evangelist for Tabletop Journal and features designers David Queensberry and Martin Hunt from the famed London-based tabletop design firm of Queensberry Hunt and runs for approximately 90 minutes. This conversation was taped in January of 2018. Now, here's Dave.
1: In today's conversation, I sit with noted tabletop designers David Queensberry and Martin Hunt on a rainy overcast day in David's home in the Notting Hill section of London. David and Martin are both incredible designers, but very different from one another. And a goal I had in this conversation was to find out more about who they are as people and what really continues to drive them both individually. David is now 88 years old and Martin is 72 years old and as a design partnership. Queensbury and Hunt have been a partnership for 52 years, which is pretty much unheard of in our industry. And I wanted to try to dig into their relationship together and how that relationship has evolved over the years. And my final goal was I wanted to find out if they'd ever given consideration to what life may have been like if they had not found one another. After all, 52 years is a lifetime, and I wanted to know if they'd ever contemplated why the relationship has lasted so well and what life might have been like had they not found each other and here's what they had to say we talked about earlier david that you come from a notable family you come from a notable background and yet you started as a junior assistant on the factory floor at stoke in the ceramics business and at one point you said you were quoted as saying this is not a very buzzy business and I'm guessing that you meant it's not a very celebratory, not a very high street type business. What was it about the tactile nature of clay, mass production, and design that you found so appealing? Well, I got
2: into ceramics uh, at school, uh, and we had a department of art, and the art department covered pottery. And so I I started off probably at the age of 14 or 15 uh, working away on the potter's wheel and it was something that got me about it uh, and has never left me. And it's the way in which you can make and form and shape things in pottery uh, in different methods and systems uh, that began to excite me. And then I became interested, in a sense, in the history of ceramics because you have to remember it's the oldest craft of which we have a continuous record. And the earliest functional pottery probably goes back about 14,000 years. And it, it was not just that I was interested in making things, but I think the Victorian Albert Museum collection, which happened to be about half a mile from where my mother lived uh, in London, which I used to go to a lot, just, I got hooked on it. I mean, in the way that I might have got hooked on drugs or something. <laughs> Ceramics is a little bit like it's a, a bit like that, and it's, it's not logical. And I started off by wondering. In fact, one moment I thought I might go and work in the museum, because I knew the head of the museum, who was a friend of my mother's. And um, uh, then I decided the answer was to go the art school route. So I started off by going to art college and it was an art college which was primarily studio ceramics that something happened which was that I decided that I didn't actually want to be a studio potter I didn't want to be the diminutive Bernard Leach working away in Cornwall mm-hmm. and there was something about the way things were made industrially that excited me and if you wanted to find out anything about that, the answer was Mm Stoke-on-Trent, and my initial trip was to go up there on a motorbike and spend a few days looking round factories, and then, as you know,
1: decided to go and work up there. When you decided to go work up in Stoke-on-Trent, as I said earlier, I've I've read that you took a very junior position there. My guess was... I wasn't
2: offered anything any more than that. But, but I, mean, my, my, I mean, nobody asked me to be the managing director of the company.
1: How long were you there? What were the things that you learned well, that I you mean, wouldn't have learned the, the, anywhere else? I mean,
2: it's quite odd, but through a connection, mm-hmm. I had no idea where to go. But I got a connection with a, the, the sort of Wedgwoods of the 20th century have been were the Johnsons both in tiles and in pottery. <laughs> and uh, anyhow, I managed to get a job at this tile factory. And I thought that the best thing to do was to enrol in the technical, in was then days it was called a technical college. And all the potters did uh, this course at the technical college. So I enrolled to do this course and got a job in the laboratory of the tile factory. And became very fascinated by the technology of ceramics. In fact, I worked on—it was probably rather boring—but I worked on the earliest zircon frits, which were to take over from tin as an apacifier. Mm. And I think uh, H. R. Johnson's up to a few years might have been using some of the frits I worked on. And but I also allowed me to make things on the factory. So when the factory closed at 5 o'clock, I used to go and start fiddling away trying to make and design, because I had no intention of staying there to be a sort of laboratory
1: technician, but it was an
2: entree to the industry.
1: That, That idea that you would come from an artistic background and go into a production, more basic background, that would be unusual today. Uh, I suspect it was unusual then, too. Were there others doing what you were doing, coming out of, uh, the, we'll say, the creative backgrounds uh, with your All family? I can
2: tell you, having been to Eton, I didn't meet any old Etonians in Stoke-on-Trent. <laughs> fair enough, fair <laughs> enough. But having said that, uh, I think initially I was really miserable and terribly ill at ease. And I used to become... The opposite. Uh, You know, I really love the people in Stoke-on-Trent and have made some of the best friends of my life Mm -hmm. up there. And to this day, you know, I still have great friends in Stoke. And it was... uh, there was something about the character of the people and the work they did that was so different to the world I knew anything about and in some way, much better.
1: Martin, you came into this business a few years after, David. <clears throat> what was that seduction process like for you? Because you were obviously gravitated and you went to the Royal College of Art. Well, I didn't do anything heroic like David <laughs> going to study on Train.
3: I was more a straight line. I mean, I had always been an artist since the first thing I could do. You know, painting with a little watercolour box and... Things like that, and uh, uh, it was a toss-up. I mean, in my teens, I was obsessed about boats and sailing, and uh, I used to go and have my holidays on the Isle of Wight, where the big centre of sailing is in the United <laughs> Kingdom, historically and, and also today, and um, stay with my aunt there for the summer holiday, long summer holidays, and. Uh, so it became a toss up when I was seventeen or eighteen, about to graduate from school, whether I was already signed up with a potential job as a, a trainee naval architect oh, in yes. cows in the Isle of Wight in a company called Groves and guttridge, one of the very advanced yacht builders in the end, because of the art thing, it, it was almost spinning a coin. I said, no, i 'll go to art college instead." so I went to the Cheltenham College of Art in Gloucestershire where I lived and um, did three years there. Then again a spin of a coin I suppose because for some reason I turned up at the art college maybe a week or two late for the beginning of the term and uh, turned up at the registration department. They said well look all you can do is just join in. You'll be in the first year. What are the first years doing? The first years have two options: one lot of going to do textiles, and the other lot of doing ceramics. So it was, you know, which which shall I go for? You know, and I knew nothing, pretty much nothing about either. And there's textile design that was decorations, mm-hmm. and there was ceramics. Who knows what that was? I decided to do ceramics, and part of the interest in boat building and in art it had always been to do with making things in my hands and actually i overheard my great aunt talking to somebody in my hearing once when i was in my t- teens and say, you know martin when he was a little boy he was always fiddling with something so it's a bit of a family joke now but it, it was always to do things about the boat building you know all of that you know i started to build boats and then, you know, you hit ceramics, you realize, okay, there's some things to make, yeah. right? You go through this process, you can make things, you know, and you can make them and take them home. You know, you can make them to eat your porridge out of So, uh, th- that was appealing. The other thing that was appealing is that the head of uh, ceramics was a wild sort of rugby playing sort of character very full of beans and very dedicated himself and so he was a bit of a leader right you could sort of go along with so I did a happy three years at um, the Gloucestershire College of Art at Cheltenham and then he said why do not you have a go at getting into the Royal College of Art and so I applied there he was 36 years old sitting at the, behind the Mr. interview, <laughs> st- interview uh, a table and for some reason or other I got in. I often think, you know, what if I'd done textiles? But it was the atmosphere of art and particularly craft and particularly making things. So when I went to look over the Royal College of Art about eight months, knowing I was going to apply that year, It was an open day that David had arranged um, and... uh, What is an open day? An open day is when the students are sort of alerted to show visitors all their work. So it's a PR sort of day. And there was a lot of wonderful sort of plaster, moulds and things for making industrial pottery, which is what they were being trained to do, immaculate. Molds and things and it was even more immaculate than studio pottery and throwing a soft bit of clay on a wheel right oh this is like boat building this is you know this is a a different order yeah it had a it had a you know you you know if you could learn it you could sort of do better things than other people could do it it was less approximate than uh, a lot of craft pottery So, you know, that kind of sold me um, because I knew at the time, or that although I was a studio potter, and that's all I basically, you know, got reasonably good at, you more or less had to put your hand on your heart when you went into his course and say, I want to be a designer, right, in using these industrial techniques in industrial pottery. I mean it wasn't quite as black and white as that at that time and David changed it uh, later on into being much more open, but at the time you knew you were going to the Royal College of Art to be a designer in ceramics and end up working for a factory. So
1: that's basically how I got in it, so it's a very straight line. Do you remember the first time that you and David really uh, had any kind of an interchange other than a hello? Do you remember meeting him for the first time, and what your impressions were? I remember
3: my interview day, and uh, the interview went on over about four days, because first you had an introductory interview with David and the members of staff to get to know you. Then you had a few days of doing plant drawings and designs for Whatever the brief was, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So you had to make some things before you kind of signed off and went home again and i remember coming up from the provincial art school in the west of england in my school suit with real laid-back jeans Mm -hmm. you know very very casual they knew what it was all about and there was me sort of sitting there Uh, anyway that the the, the interviews seemed to revolve about ideas like that more than anything else but um you know, I was delighted in the end, you know, the next three years was set up for me. I would be going to this
1: wonderful place in London. So you were a marketer of ceramics even then, because everybody showed up very casually dressed, and you were differentiated <laughs> you know, by I, being well-dressed. Uh, he, he, uh, he rapidly changed. He rapidly changed, you say.
3: No, I was a naive
1: idiot, you know, didn't know how to dress to that, be cool that's, in that's, London. No, that's, <laughs> David, do you remember the first impressions you had of Martin? Just there was something about Martin which was he's
2: a sort of born craftsman. And you sort of knew that anything he turned his hands to, and I don't mean it metaphorically, mm-hmm. he would be doing excellently. And I think very, very early on, because we had at the college Uh, other people. We had, for example, um, a modeler from Wedgwoods who used to come and work in the department. We also had a technologist from Stoke who worked in the department and gave lectures. And uh, it was very, very clear that Martin had an aptitude for design and craftsmanship which was, I would say, almost unsurpassed. I mean, there were plenty of students who were uh, perhaps as talented, but not, uh, we were a bit moving away from just uh, design, but in the design area, it was clear that Martin was really ahead of anybody else. Uh, And actually, I would go as far as to say that it became quite clear to me fairly soon that he had skills and abilities that I didn't have.
1: Give me an example of how Martin w- at that time, because that's very early on. Yeah. Uh, and, he, and you didn't know him really well at that point. You were beginning to know him. How, no, what I kind mean, of, how we was got
2: these? to know each other uh, only and entirely because he was accepted to the department mm-hmm. and I was head of the department also to remember that in those days, the staff-student ratio wouldn't be acceptable now. I mean, you know, we had about 25 people. So you really, and also I was full-time at the beginning. So you
1: knew your students very well. So I
2: really got to know my, I mean, I got to know my, my students very well, I mean, and still do. And David never shut the door of his office. It was all f-
3: flung wide open, yeah. you know, whether he had visitors there, you know, from industry or whatever.
2: So you could always wander in and say, look, I've just been doing this, what do you think? I mean, a lot of the people that were at the caucus, also, I was quite young. And, I mean, some of the students, particularly if they're done national service, so, you know, I'm about, when I go there, I'm a 30, and 31, say, and the some of the students are 25. So there wasn't a big difference, you know, In our age, you know, so, uh, 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 and as I said, Martin was clearly going to be very, very good at what he was doing.
0: You are listening to Beyond the Table with Dave Turner, chief evangelist for Tabletop Journal, where we celebrate the products, the people, and the places all in the world of hospitality tabletop. Dave is talking with David Queensberry and Martin Hunt from the tabletop design firm of Queensberry Hunt. In this next segment, Dave asks David and Martin who their heroes were when they started working in the tabletop industry.
1: This is a question I was going to save until later, but I'll, I'll ask it now because you bring up the age issue, David, and I think that's really an important part of this. Um, I mentioned that this podcast series uh, is about the heroes in our industry. Do you remember who the heroes you had in this industry were when you were 31 or maybe even a little before to get you into this? One was the historical thing. Mm-hmm. And there
2: I think probably the, the great pots that bowled me over had, were Chinese. Okay. And you know, I think that's summed up with the Percival David collection which is now uh, in the British Museum. Uh, so there was that. Uh, then there was, I would say, really good design in pottery, and I particularly admired Josiah Wedgwood's early work, you know, in the um, in the mid uh, 18th century. But in the but in the more modern area, I think what impressed us was Scandinavian design. There was something going on in uh, particularly Sweden and Denmark uh, that was, seemed to me, much more interesting than what was happening in England. And then, of course, which was to become very important to us, Rosenthal. Philip Rosenthal had taken over the Rosenthal uh, company uh, in about 1955. And uh, what he was doing and the designers that he was working with I think had a huge impression on both Martin and me. Yeah, because once one had one's foot in the door of Rosenthal himself
3: in Bavaria, um, you know, you were beat, they were all there. Mm-hmm. You know, Tapio Verkala, Fendantimo, Neva, you know, all of these people were like staying. stay, Rosenthal's got its own little private hotel that you stayed in. Uh, and uh, you know they were all there in the evening and so it was suddenly you know these names had faces and they were extraordinary so somebody like tapio was probably 55 or 60 years old when i was 23 mm. and but so it was a, in a sense it was a massive privilege you know to meet them before that uh, for me it was I think Japanese pottery yes. and are very much the sort of tea ceremony, zen, sort of very, very quiet, small qualities and, no, agree, and agree. the man in England, the, our most famous studio potter of the early days, Bernard Leach, who promoted um, very much the Japanese aesthetic and loathed industry and thought all industrial pots were terrible. So, in a sense, I had to balance, you know, the absolute... A bit of a conflict. Down on my knees in front of the Japanese wonderful tea bowls or whatever else. And this fabulous plaster mould in which you could repeatedly make any object you wish to make. You know, just keep making them.
1: Well, that brings me to a follow-up on that same thought is you and David operate at an intersection which is a bit unique, uh, an intersection of art and commercial business because the products that you make for everyday use, whether they be in restaurants and hotels on one side or the the consumer household on on the other, they still have to have a commercial viability. And yet they still have to have a certain artisan component too. So there is this balance, I suppose. But how do you decide where to... I guess the question, it's a question you ask musicians all the time, too. Where do the ideas come from? How do you decide um, uh, wh- the why behind the product? Well, nearly, I mean, in a way, because of the long history
2: of pottery, uh, almost everything you do has a connection with something that has been done previously. It doesn't mean you're knocking it off or copying it, but actually you look at, as Martin talked about, the sort of refinement of certain Japanese uh, and Chinese parts. And then you think to yourself, how could we get that quality, that excellence, into something we're doing, but not by trying to copy it? I mean, funnily enough, it's still with us because recently we were working on something and uh, we actually took the inspiration from a bow that was in the Percival David Foundation collection.
3: I think you mentioned, Dave, the uh, musician, and I think there is a sort of analogy because for our world of classicism you've got very few notes in a musical scale from which anything can be created mm-hmm. those same handful of notes on a bassoon or a violin have another whole set of material qualities aesthetic qualities that you listen mm-hmm. to right so although the the seeds are very few the balls you can throw in the air by the time you permutate it the instrument on which they're played and the five or eight notes, right? You've got almost everything. So, uh, you know, one is, you know, balancing up um, uh, things that are often incredibly simple, like three notes, right? But we'll do them played on this strange Oriental instrument, right? So I I think that uh, there's, you know, once you've mastered those few notes, and got an appreciation of the other very good people that can play all these other instruments. Not yourself, maybe. You got it. You know. Then you just permutate it. So then you say, what is the idea that directs it? You know. That is the sort of sub, you know, the mechanics of it. That is so difficult. And I mean, it, it, it's. I mean, for us having done a lot of it, I think it is almost like scrolling through a million images, Mm. very fast, stop it, you know, Mm -hmm.
2: mix those two. Uh, But but I think sometimes uh, uh, a lot of the things, if you're looking at surroundings, there is the sort of, what I would call the world of the collectible, the very expensive um, things that uh, you would see in a museum, highly decorative Ming dynasty and that sort of thing. But then you discover that there are actually, if you say look at uh, Greek pottery from the 5th century BC, there are all these amazing vases with these figurative designs on them. But then you'll find in the Archaeological Museum a tiny little pot that wasn't ever made to be admired and, very expensive, but just a little thing out of which somebody might have had soup
1: and every day. with a little
2: handle on it. And suddenly it is those things, sometimes the simpler and what you would think might be the less uh, sort of desired, but curiously, uh, a short time ago, apart from the Song dynasty, a small bowl that had been used by a calligrapher to mix up his pigments in uh, which came under the hammer in Hong Kong and fetched something like twenty eight million dollars and it made me think that there are a few people out there who can respect and understand the beauty of absolute simplicity. I mean there is something uh, and I think this is one of, in a sense, our things that has been a strength and a weakness, and that is that most of the things we do have been minimally decorated. And yet what people think about in pottery is very often decoration. As Martin said earlier on, when we were talking prior to the discussion with you being recorded now, uh, that that is the case. And we, I think, uh, uh, have lived through uh, this dominance of decoration into a different era whereby suddenly people were interested in the simplicity of whiteness which had interested us for previous 25 or 30 years. So in that sense, we came lucky.
3: But with the... uh the Japanese tea bowl with its rich, matte glaze of iron some natural material there's white plates David's just described there's the other whole enormous vocabulary of ceramics in the museum Mm -hmm. all these techniques many of which during the history of industrial pottery in 250 years uh, that uh, have been explored by one or other company, maybe Wedgwood notably and others. But of the many things that uh, you find in museums that actually w- we realise we're not slavishly into white plates because actually, you know, industry only does a very narrow slot of what is possible in the history of ceramics. And so we've always been allowed ourselves, I suppose, to be wooed into this other technical area of all these other materials. And all the other materials lead you into causing a lot of problems for factories to try to do new processes because the new materials almost always need investment of some sort or new processes. So that has been a, a strength, but it's also been a
1: problem for us and for a lot of people. You know, the, the affinity for the production process seems to be a thread that binds, and there's many others I'm sure, the both of you. But are there differences too, uh, are you, Martin, do you approach uh, the design process differently than David and maybe conversely so too? David, you differently than Martin? Well, I, I mean, let's start
2: by me saying that Martin is a better hands-on designer than I am. And that was quite clear to me. And that's uh, one of the reasons I was smart enough when he graduated from the Royal College of Art to say to him, perhaps you'd like to work with me. <laughs> I mean, on the basis, it would be much better to have Martin with me than against me. Sure. But that, perhaps don't come out of that very well. But I think uh, Martin has a sense of detail which I can't rival. But I think one of the things that I've got which does equal Martin is having ideas and concepts about things, about the way things might be going. And I think that... I'm not saying Martin's weak in that way, but I think that we do have different capabilities which has made us able to work together quite well.
1: It's gone on for some time, Martin. How do you see the the skill sets and the personalities of... uh, David David,
3: with his own personal set of educations, and we haven't really mentioned that you know David's very, very well connected to the food world of London, because it, great friends of his are food critics for our papers, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Et so David has been long into people who own restaurants and you know where to go to and all of these things. I mean the the whole aesthetic as well as the deliciousness of food, and uh, so. Uh, I think, yes, I would say David has a fantastic strategic concept idea. I don't know how to express it, but he he, he will have a, a very broad view of something that may be a possibility. And I seem to be able to make a good effort at translating that into reality. And th- th- I, I think that... Working with one's hands gives you a tremendous amount of patience so you can keep doing things. you know even if you didn't get it right in your head from what we've discussed at the beginning, one can keep trying it because I don't I won't give up because I like doing it. You've got, to, you've got to look at something, either spot the bit of it when it's going well. You've got that half made mm-hmm. in my workshop, right? And say, actually, stop there. That's better than what I was trying to achieve. I've seen mm-hmm. something else. In well,
1: it was going to be my question how do you know when to stop? Well, <laughs> I think Martin has an ability.
2: One thing I'll say about Interject here is that Martin has such a sense of perfection that the moment he looks at something and thinks it's wrong uh, he would never say that's good enough he will always do it again you can but often do something again just to prove that the one you thought was good was good enough yeah okay. yeah but well, i think the throw it away but the, second the, but the other thing that's been very important in our uh, relationship and where probably I uh, come in and partly because of being a professor at the Royal College of Art, It gave me the ability to make contact with people, not in a commercial way, but in an academic way, so that our contact with the Rosenthal Group, that has been by far the most important contact in our, wouldn't you agree, Martin, in our business life, was because when I came to the Royal College and I was looking at how it was so so totally geared to the requirements of the English pottery industry which in a way I didn't rate but there was this guy Philip, there's a picture of me with it, Philip Rosenthal was doing something that was getting publicity and I'm thinking the Royal College of Art must try to have a contact with this man mm-hmm. and so I contacted Philip because he is, although he was German Jewish, he was also uh, a very English, he'd been in the British Army and I got this letter back from Philip saying yes you can come and see us and I would say that was a single most important thing that I achieved for Queensbury Hunt was to make that contact because not only did I work for Rosenthal but then we and that involved Martin, Robin and me began to do work and we did a tremendous amount for Rosenthal a lot of which is over, Mm. we forget about it but the two things that lasted were trend and loft and I would say Those shapes, Robin must be quoted in here, I think those shapes were, did require some sort of team effort.
3: Oh, very much so, yeah.
2: You're not entirely one person. But I think before we
3: started to turn the recording machine on, you were talking about heroes in the subject. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, of course, Philip Rosenthal was a hero. We talked about Derek Dudson, who was the owner of (laughs) Dudson's, with his father, the two sons now, uh, Ian and, and Max, uh, who was a hero, because only a, a, a hero would, you know, knowing this is a senior man you know, dressed in a suit, right, come to London to visit the Royal College of Art, uh, would um, say, I'd just been down on the factory on Saturday morning, making some things to try if I could sort out a problem.
2: Only a hero
3: would do that. Also don't so,
2: forget uh, Hornsey. Yeah, o- I o- mean, God Hornsey, God. which is very much Martin's work, but I mean, what we did with Hornsey was, I mean, probably, I mean, in pure design terms, you know, one of the most interesting things, you know, we've I mean, got design awards as in the Victorian Albert Museum. And that company been started by two guys uh, who had never had any connection with the pottery business. Sure. In fact, they came out of the army, didn't know what to do, and started a pottery.
3: But but I think your term of the heroes is 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 important because yeah, I mean you list some of these people that are not heroes like Achilles, but they're you know just for one thing they did going down onto the factory on a Saturday. Sure. Becomes a hero to somebody that's you know twenty five thirty
1: years younger than.
3: Them because you didn't think the world was like that.
1: Yeah, I think at that point, and, and, and this is the reason why uh, I keep coming back at this point anyway in the conversation, to focus on that period of time, because I think we're all very impressionable in our 20s, and, and maybe even before that in our teens, and we're looking for inspiration, career pathing, what would I want to be when I grow up kind of thing. And when you bump into a hero, it has huge impact. And I suspect that that, uh, you all, both of you, are heroes to people now. And if there's people out here that listen to this, I would ask them uh, one question I would have if I was looking to be a designer. What do you think the aspects of a great designer are? Although it didn't cause me any
3: pain doing it, so there wasn't heroic pain involved like in a battle, right? You've got to do a lot. Until you wise up. Because I'm talking about wise up in terms of your judgment, mm-hmm. not just of your maturity as a businessman or whatever, but uh, the, some of that's judgment. Yeah, but the, the, to make judgments in the world of aesthetics is extraordinarily difficult and a long-term education, I think. You know to be able to make your mind up
1: quickly and know what to do. It's a qu- interesting question. I suspect when you're a newly minted art school graduate, it's difficult to be to make a judgment, as you say, and have confidence in 100% confidence in that judgment. At what point in your trajectory as a designer do you get that that confidence that your judgment is correct? How did David use this? Martin can look at a piece and say that needs to be changed, or that's what it is. Oh,
3: but there Where two, do you get yeah, you that? You only, you only, I suppose... Well, there's, there is the inner confidence, but I suppose you do measure yourself in terms of other people's reaction to things and what they see in things that you believe is absolutely wrong. Or one you, 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 is bouncing off other people's opinion, things that they would think are perfectly adequate. That's perfectly adequate to have in my shop, uh, perfectly nice, you know. We say, no it isn't, and I can tell you why it is not,
2: right? but, but you've got uh, to be successful on two fronts. One is you've got to be successful within your own ideas, within your own aesthetic. But the other thing, and this is the imponderable one, I mean, uh, you can be sure that you think you've got this jug right, But then there's this completely different world of what happens when you show it to the buyer for Marks and Spencers. What does the buyer of Marks and Spencers have to say? Who, in your opinion, may not be the most enlightened.
1: Has never designed anything.
2: And uh, it doesn't seem to you to show much uh, taste or discernment. But on the other hand, she does have the responsibility and she's not always wrong. And you're not always right. And so you then have the problem of these products. You, you start on a pro- project, a product. It goes in different ways. Quite a few of the things you start on, as it were, fall on stony ground. They just never get on the market. Mm-hmm. Then you get something and it gets on the market. Well, what actually happened? We, we have things right now on the market which we don't know how they're going to go. We've no idea. And despite that we've been at it in 52 years, uh, we can look at things and be very, very confident in our own mind that we're proud of them. We think they're right. But what we can never say with absolute certainty is this a design like a roulette, which has been in Creighton Barrel for about 20 years. Mm-hmm. Or is it something that we thought was equally good, that was in on the market, lasted yeah, for five
3: years? But, but I think in the sort of mature designer, um, you've you also got to reach a point of integrity. Uh, you know, like your doctor, right, who's trained, you know, it matters what you say. And... Uh, so you've got to train yourself in your evolution and i say you can only do that by doing a lot of it you know to so you can throw away the rubbish which you will certainly make Uh, uh, to well often said to students that you work on something at college or as a young designer and you think it's just wonderful you really got it right okay So you're as confident as I might say I'm feeling confident now at my age. You're really confident. It's fabulous. Great idea. And you're going to go and show it to somebody. Maybe it's a buyer in a Mm -hmm. store. Maybe it's Derek Dudson or the marketing director of a company. And I say, remember, when you put that object that you think is so terrific on the table in front of them, your eyes will suddenly open But all the things that you kidded yourself about, not being quite right, that you've suppressed in thinking it's just fabulous what I've done, right, suddenly become clear to you. So what you've got to do in your maturity is to anticipate and not kid yourself about all the little things that are not really very good and sort them out before you show it to the marketing director or the buyer. So, that, where you reach that point is, I suppose, where you've got the integrity of a doctor, where you say, I'm telling you something I believe in, and, you know, take notice of it, uh, and that's a, th- th- that period of time for a, a young designer is, can be any period of time when you sort of wise up to, have I got it correct?
2: It, it's, it's, a, it's a subtle thing. Hmm. But there's nothing that, you, you, in the end, you have to get the products you design on the market. So there's, there is that balance. Between you have to get them on the market. Aesthetics and, and commercial, commercial it's, viability. Uh, it's no good playing a violin to yourself on the North Pole. you know, There's got to be an audience. Somebody's got to like it, listen to it. And I think the big difficulty that we have now against the past was that when we were working for these major European companies, you know, names like Dalton, Wedgwood, uh, you know, um, Rosenthal, Toniana in Italy, we did the design, we worked on it, we did everything we could to get it right uh, and I think occasionally we did things, some things are better than other things in retrospect. But I don't think we've ever put anything on the market or designed anything that we didn't believe in. We've never done anything just because somebody said, oh, what they're looking for, something a bit like this. We've never gone that way. We've gone the way of trying to do what we believe in. But... Whereas in the past, having done it, it then became the business of the company how to sell and market it. So you would go to what in those days was the Birmingham Trade Fair and you'd see your product and you'd say, isn't it wonderful and how's it going? And you would know that, I mean, the the loft is on sale in 70 countries in the world so they told us. I never had to, I had difficulty believing it, but they told us it was so in 70 countries in the world. But nowadays, we're working for some company, you know, very good people, perhaps in Bangladesh, but there's no way they're gonna get it in 70 countries around the world. So I think one of the difficulties that we face today is that we might be developing things that really have potential, but somehow what is required to make them commercially successful is very difficult to put together. And we try to do it, but I think in some ways uh, we have been quite successful at both designing, making, and selling our products. But I see that as being increasingly difficult partly because of our age. And therefore, you know, the most recent project that we've done with um, which involves Port Merion, puts us back into that bracket that we were in, which is that we now have a company who, if it doesn't sell, it's not going to be because they couldn't put it on the market. It's going to be because, for some reason, it didn't sell.
1: They have there's reach.
2: going to be no excuse right. to say... Whereas you can design something for a company, uh, as I said, you know, in Indonesia, and they can show it at the Burmese Ambiente Trade Fair for four days. And if they don't sell it in four days, they go, that's the end of it. And we do have, I would say, quite a few projects at the moment, which, in my view, we may have difficulty in getting on the market. And I think that is, if we go back to younger people, uh, that is a problem for them too. Also, the lead-in time is so long. And now, I would say, from starting with a design job to actually seeing it on the market and to be able to know it's successful could be three years. And indeed, getting some royalty payments from it
3: if you're going to be paid by receiving royalties, which yeah. is fairly common. Mm-hmm. It could be two years or, or more, you know, after the first deliveries are made or whatever. And uh, so it's a long, long time, and probably not sustainable by a young designer, which is a, bit of, which is a really big... I mean, design. I
2: think it's very difficult for young... I mean, I mean for example, when Rosenthal went bankrupt, uh, We were... they owed us money, right? Uh, I never knew how much they owed us or what it was, but they owed us money. That was in 2009. About a week ago, I got a letter from some accountants in Germany uh, asking for an account of our bank as they had a final settlement to make with us. Uh, just wait for the rest of this the final settlement to make first and I was saying to myself well is it going to be uh, you know 5 euros or something and um, they suddenly they credited our account with 10,000 pounds well that was very handy but <laughs> if you're a young designer it's quite a long waiting
1: time it's a little bit of cash flow <laughs> it's
2: yeah. not good for cash flow
0: Listening to Beyond the Table with Dave Turner, Chief Evangelist for Tabletop Journal, where we celebrate the products, the people, and the places all in the world of hospitality tabletop. Dave is talking with David Queensberry and Martin Hunt from the tabletop design firm of Queensberry Hunt. In this final segment, David and Martin talk about how and when they knew that their career in the tabletop industry was a possibility. I want to circle back
1: around to the genesis the Queensberry Hunt partnership, let's call it. Um, Most of the great inventors, the great creators, Da Vinci, Bell, who did the phone, Edison, uh, all worked in singular terms. How did you both know, and it's a question individually for each of you, how did you both know and when did you know that this had the possibility and, and perhaps in 1966 when you started you didn't know that it was going to be a life's work kind of partnership but but you knew there was enough of it that you wanted to be, Martin you knew you wanted to be with David. David, you were, as you said earlier, you were smart enough to recognize that he was better at certain things, Martin was better than you were at certain things, but what was it and how did that go and do you remember the conversation? And well, I can remember it in a
2: way probably very clearly because I had the job at the Royal College of Art which was meant to be full time but the Royal College of Art liked the idea of you doing your own work. So there was a, there was going to be a limit to the time that I would have available to have this job as well as being doing a design work and one of the things that made it uh, very convenient was that we could work in a limited way at the Royal College of Arts, in a sense, had our own workshop. I knew that I had the ability to get work, but I didn't have the time and, and in some ways perhaps didn't have the talent to do it. So there was me with the capability of getting work, Martin, on his own, I think would have had great difficulty Mm. if he had just left the Royal College of Art. In fact, Robin Levine, who left the Royal College of Art, very, very talented, and uh, set himself up as a designer on his own. But in the end... This was a graduation, not when he left us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. and, And anyhow... He joined us uh, because he had some difficulty in those early days and I would say now to leave a college of art and set up a business called, you know, Queensbury Hunt, of two people who were both, you know, well, I was 35 and he was 25, and say we're now going to do a business designing pottery and make a living is, I'm not saying it's
1: impossible, but it's pretty difficult mm-hmm. to make a success of it. Was that, Martin, when you were having those conversations about partnering par- possibly, well, was that well, what your thinking was? Set up as freelance designers,
3: you did, didn't have any sort of great hopes. <laughs> you knew it was going to be difficult because it wasn't uh, very obvious, you know, that. One thing would happen following another and it would all go swimmingly well. There would always be work to do. But there was always something to do because we'd sit together and said, well, why don't we make something like that? Because I think I could show it to Roy Midwinter, who had the Midwinter Pottery that David is quite connected to, or whatever, right? Or there was, oh, so-and-so rang up the other day and said they'd quite like to come and see us. Right? So, while there were things for me to do, so to speak, in the workshop, there were always, you know, like maybe two or three weeks ahead, going and seeing a company in West London that made melamine tableware. Right? And would that, anything come out of that? Or British Airways. Uh, uh, Or British Airways. Yeah. Or the QE2 was being built. uh, You know, At our tableware. Or the Concord, Or, or as I mentioned before this started, that the Design Council in London, a government-sponsored body to promote design and to exhibit design in their own galleries, um, commercially made design in their own galleries, um, you know, we were always getting jobs from them. You know, it, uh, they gave our name with two others to you know, f- somebody that made a, an approach to them, saying, "I want a to design a design pottery or textiles or furniture or whatever." And they would, you know, so they had a long list of people that they quite approved of, and they would come round graduation shows and look at students' work, say, "You know, we'll put your name down on our list." You know, what's, what's your? Inter-, you know, they'd interview you, mm-hmm. and. That was a very rich source because it gave the manufacturer who might not know very much about design anyway, was just sure. hoping to be led in the direction that would take them out of the problems they've got, right? It would give them the added confidence of the you know, British Design Centre, government sponsored, have recommended this person. It must be all right, right? So you, in that case you go in not so highly speculative, you know, like you're knocking on the door. Sure. But somebody is at least... It's not really cold calling. It's not really because like somebody's holding your hand for the first hundred yards. Sure. And uh, that was invaluable. And several of our most important jobs, including the working with Hornsea Pottery in the north of England that David recommended, came exactly out of that. In Dudson's, you know... Uh, uh, and but Dudson still have, in their range, uh, some of the pieces that I designed then in 1967.
1: Were there philosophical things that led you to, say, uh, beyond, uh, we talk about some economical ones, it's hard getting started if you're a brand new uh, designer, newly minted. Uh, were there philosophical things, uh, reasons that you decided that David Queensbury was a guy that you could uh, well, work with? It's it just because of his performance. I mean, David,
3: 36, you know, with his background and his articulacy and, and everything, you know, could deal with any situation. So, you know, as a quiet lad from Gloucestershire... I don't
2: know about right? uh, no, no, but You're I mean, not
3: agreeing with that quiet lad piece. i, 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 I,
2: I noticed another side. The,
3: the, exa- the exaggerating for a fact. Sure. But, uh, that, uh, you know, it was pretty obvious that there was a damn good chance it would work.
2: And so the Royal it, College. And the Royal College. It was a huge... I mean, to think about... I mean, I would say that the Royal College of Art, uh, I mean, the two most important things of my life are going to Stoke and getting the job at the Royal College of Art, because it was at the Royal College of Art, amongst other things, I met Martin. But, I mean, we effectively were you know, in a marvellous situation, uh, and we were able to make use of the facilities of the Royal College of Art. And uh, uh, if you combine that with the, uh, w- w- with the Design Council, we had a type of credibility uh, that was hugely helpful.
1: No, I, think that's I that's... mean, if
2: I'd written to Philip Rosenthal, as a good example of this, if I'd written to Philip Rosenthal as a 33-year-old designer and said, "My name's David Queensbury, and I, uh, I admire what you're doing, and I'd like to come and see you," and he was already working with people like uh, Timo Sarpaneva, uh, you know, Tapio Wirkkala, Jan Windblad, etc., why the hell would he see me? The answer is, he wouldn't have seen me. But when I wrote to him saying I'm the professor of ceramics at the Royal College of Art, and it's true to say that at that point I was not going there on the basis of self-interest. I was going there because I thought it was good for the Royal College. And it proved to be very good for the Royal College of Art. And it did, en passant, prove to be quite good for me. But, I mean, but that also I would like to say uh, on that
3: point... Because Queensbury and Hunt you know became a design entity, David took probably eight or ten other Royal College of Art students into Rosenthal in all sorts of different design and art situations. You know, so it wasn't just like us selfishly no. got Rosenthal because David's a professor.
1: The best partnerships are both ways. They go both ways. Yeah. yeah. Benefits go both ways. Fast forward to today. Um, designer that's hot on everybody's uh, mind is a gentleman named Johnny Ive, who is the head of design, I believe is the most recent title, back again as head of design for Apple. Um, he is quoted as saying that every single project, every single object, excuse me, that is made testifies to the values and the preoccupations of the people that got together to make it. If that's true, what would be the values and the preoccupations of uh, Queensbury Hunt. I
2: rather like what David Pye said. He said, "When when when we try to do anything, I think what we would say is we're probably trying to do something not that different to what we've done before, but better. So we just keep with the same concepts of the things we do we're not probably breaking uh, completely new ground. I mean, I think when we came up with the new uh, choices range for Port Merion, and we came up with the idea that you don't need a foot ring on the plate, and it could be flat, and the flat back of the plate could be decorated, which would not only have a visual aesthetic characteristic, but would stop the abrasion of one plate against another. I mean, I, I think we... I, I don't think we're going to do anything desperately new, do you, Martin? No, me? I think the choices is, is a
3: is a, shape is a, a good example. If I just put a couple of pieces on the table, because there's nothing new in this. Mm-hmm. A cylindrical mug, that is an original. A hemispherical bowl, millions of them. Hemispherical cup. Similarly, why we are a little bit satisfied with this and think it's good is that while we've done something that isn't original, it's archetypal. It is the bowl that you always thought you could see, and the cup that's natural to use, and the mug that is extraordinarily simple. But we're taking from other parts of the ceramic industry the green and the blue which they don't do in porcelain. They don't like having coloured glazes in porcelain because they're frightened of the whiteness of the product and loss that they might get on other, other merchandise going through the kilns, etc. Thirty years ago, making very thin porcelain went out of use in Europe, except at the five-star level of Limoges and Rosenthal, Villaroy a bit, I guess, because it had to be fired on setters in order to hold this very thin pottery into shape. So, to reintroduce that as a, at a very good price, you know, so it's affordable, is another component. That isn't an original thing, perhaps you could say, but a reintroduction, thinness, is well known in pottery. Trouble is, it's very expensive. So, you put two or three things together None of which sort of would amaze anybody if you take them separately, and suddenly you realise you got something for which there is no longer a category in the department stores, unless you're Neiman Marcus or you know Tiffany's Mm -hmm. or somewhere. There's no very thin porcelain there. Porcelain means thick, day-to-day knockabout. now in Crate and Barrel, no thin, right? So. Suddenly, John Lewis don't have a category for thin pottery like this, Mm -hmm. none of it, and that this is affordable. Uh, So then you say, what is the beauty of thin pottery, and you say it's because it's translucent. So if you put the, what I would call the quality ideas together in a holistic package, It's the holism that's the important thing. Then you come to the problems of manufacture, because you've got to do it having thought of it. And that is a mountain to climb, which, as David said to you earlier on, it's taken two and a half years to bring the Port Merian thing through to the level of consistency and standard of quality that they would need to market it and not have returns. It's it's an immense problem that is very different to sitting at a drawing board or even in a small workshop. And so the the, the, where we're at now is in a sense doing incredibly simple things that are not all that simple. But if one could pull them off, you've got a holistic idea that is original.
1: Yeah, I, I, I suspect that when you started with Port Marion uh, to do this quote-unquote simple idea two and a half years ago, if you'd have told their accounting department it was going to take two and a half years to develop this product, they might not have...
3: Yeah, so, yeah I think, except that like, like um, Philip Rosenthal, Lawrence Bryan's a different sort of person. The CEO is a marketing person who has got full control of every aspect of his factory. He is like a master potter, you know, he's the li- lifer. lifer. So the lifer, you know, uh, he, he's got a very, very good idea of what it's going to take to do it, <laughs> you know. And he's kept pushing us back when we want to do the next range and the next range for the portfolio as well, you, you yeah, but, but there's
2: another point that's important here, and that is that um, the market at the middle to lower end is dominated by pretty thick, crude pottery that has no finesse, uh, no refinement. And it's the way it is, because that's the cheapest way to make pottery. If you want to make pottery... Uh, that is going to give you a good yield and no problems, that's what you get. So what do you have then? The only thing you can really sell it is on in price. So if you're, say, IKEA, and you wanted to, uh, not not the IKEA design, but sort of IKEA pottery, pretty basic stuff, and basically what they want to know is can they buy that plate for... 98 cents not one dollar twenty not one dollar ten so what we would argue is that it's a hiding for nothing for the manufacturer and just to be churning out stuff which can be moved probably within the next few years to another manufacturer who can make it for a few cents cheaper perhaps a little thicker So what we've been doing is to try to develop things that if they can make them, they would be able to get a price for, and which nobody else would be able to make. And that actually is quite a strong commercial point. And this is more of the Jonathan
3: Ive approach, because, you know... They do not. They, well, I don't have to tell you, as an American, an expert on this, but you know, they choose to do things that they want to do that have the content that they want and the quality that they want, you know, with a group of people who are totally devoted, and expert in each of their different ways. That is the ideal of making pottery. But as well. but I, I mean,
2: when we started to make this uh, with Dan Couture in, in uh, Sri Lanka. I would say it initially was a disaster, commercial disaster. They were getting a hopeless yield, you know, they were having to, you know, in order to sell 50 pieces, they made a 100. <laughs> and it looked, there was a moment where my commercial side was saying to me, we've done a wonderful product, but are we actually going to make them bankrupt? And it was a bit on the edge. It really was on the edge, but thanks to a number of things, including sending an English guy who had worked for Queensbury Hunt to work on the factory, and with Lawrence's backing, we've now got the product being made, or got the latest figures, at what we consider, and the industry would, as being an acceptable yield, so that actually... They may be able to make it now fairly profitably. So what a strong position to be in, to be able to make something that I would argue has, although it's simple, unique characteristics, that it would be incredibly difficult for anybody else to make, and to be able to make it at some reasonable
1: profitability and finally you expanded their capabilities in terms of their and maybe their quality standards stretched their quality abilities
3: we have and they have themselves right you know a tremendous amount of effort and thinking on behalf of the people that are there stimulated quite a lot by our friend Jonathan Smith moving out there (laughs) which in itself was luck in that we discovered this 50 year old chap Um, who was a freelance designer and had been at the Worcester factory for a number of years as a designer, weren't very familiar with ceramics in all its form, had worked for us for a short while, that he'd unfortunately left his wife a couple of years ago. And so he was free as a bird and could just move out there. And uh, uh, luckily also Jonathan is a a fanatical um, scuba diver. And on the weekends now, in the golden sands and the blue sea, is taking people scuba diving in a sea school with a friend of his. On the we- it's a weekend job, so it's it, how many people could emigrate
1: that you would find. Sometimes when you're when you least expect it, as long as your antennas up, opportunity.
3: Yeah, well, the gods from Mount Olympus say we're giving a good, we're good
1: shot. When we started talking, um, we started about the, the relationship uh, of over 50 years together. And I used the, the analogy of Lennon-McCartney. And I, and I don't think that that's an overstatement. I think that uh, um, in this fast-changing world that we have called ceramics, and in business in general, we talked about that a little bit, the speed of business and how it changes, um, you all have been together and, and had a partnership that has endured, and uh, I'm sure it has had its uh, ups and downs or whatever, but there has to have been some sort of a common language, much like songwriters might have, and that's where I come back to the Lennon McCartney. I suspect we just mentioned Johnny Ives. I suspect that Apple, there's a common design language there yeah. that has developed. Do, do you find that the case with you two, since it's, since it's a partnership? I think we infrequently
2: I uh, disagree. Uh, we disagree about some bits, but I don't think there's ever been anything that, that Martin wanted to do that I thought was terrible or something. I I mean, we disagree about all sorts of small things, and I think quite often... We
3: argue a tremendous amount. Yeah. We argue, you know, we... I mean, people, you can't imagine people who could argue about the handle on a teacup and get so many hours of arguing over a handle on a teacup, as we do. I, and that came home to me years ago. We were sitting in a cafe in Ireland with a lot of Rosenthalers. It was a Rosenthal sort of event in the west coast of Ireland, where they had a small factory at that time. And Hengstahl, the design director of Rosenthal, was sitting at the table with us having coffee. David and I, this was probably in 1976 or something, Hank was sitting there and David and I started having a row about you know, some way of processing some ceramic pigment. Right, we were shouting at each other and Hank was looking with eyes <laughs> like saucers at us. And after he said, you know, like we'd been together 15 years or something then, whatever. And Henk said, it's amazing that people have been together with you that long. You have such a passion that you'll have a bloody row about every little detail. I mean, David is a great devil's advocate. You know, he'll take his broad view and come in smack you know so basically when i go somewhere with something after having you know a month or two developing something with david i would have ha- been hammered very 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 thoroughly you know could this yeah you know, and i i think in a sense the the um, benefits of a partnership are ah, as long as you're basically on the same side with the aesthetic and the direction you want it to go or there isn't the greed of one over the greed of, or the non-greed of the other or any other thing that would you know be a continual friction the idea of being able to argue every angle before it's shown as i say put on the desk of the managing director.
1: Are there also times in the partnership that has endured and, and gone on for as long as uh, it has, are there also times when you begin to speak and you get it right from the very first few words, you yeah, understand yeah. exactly? It's like the joke number 11. with The, the joke number 11 you mentioned earlier. Yeah,
3: but uh, you know, I a think lot, I lot another, of it's more
2: original than that. I think but another but strength <laughs> that... It, 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 is a, it is a strength... But perhaps not always. And that is that uh, we are, um, I'm pretty sure, the designers in our little field that know more about how the products are made than any other designers. A combination of the fact that I have a technical training that we've always been interested in the latest technology in ceramics. For example, we worked with Sama, who are the big engineering machinery manufacturers in Germany. And so that we are often able to say, like to the people in the factory in Dankatora, look, we know that if we're going to get this right, you're going to have to buy a glazing machine. If you do these things by hand-dipping, they're never going to be right. We know that. That was then backed up by technical consultant. And finally, we have persuaded them, and they are buying a glazing machine. But what I mean is, I don't think there are many designers that I know in our area who would be on a factory telling them, in order to make our design, we think you ought to go about it this way and maybe you need this equipment. And that of course is a strength, but it's also a problem because when you start telling the manufacturer the way to make, they're already a bit uneasy about making a product anyhow, because it's fairly difficult. Then you say, and the way to make it properly is to spend $100,000, they begin to think, what kind
1: of nutters have we got on
3: here? I didn't think desires were like this,
1: yeah. I thought they were kindly people. (laughs) (laughs) I mentioned earlier that we were talking about young aspiring designers of all type, but specifically ceramic and tabletop. Uh, Any advice that you'd have for young people who are thinking of venturing down this uh, perilous road of ceramic and tabletop design? I, I would
2: say strongly now, it's too limited an area, or a very difficult area to be involved in totally and that more and more I think the people who are going to be doing uh, uh, design in ceramics will be people who probably have a much wider design capability.
1: In, in, in understand when I say ceramics, I mean all of tabletop with it because I know you've done other, uh, you've yeah. done glassware, I mean, somebody like
2: Sebastian and... Conrad, mm-hmm. who's, you know, no friend of mine, I mean, he has got a design business and they do a lot of high-tech design, but they also do ceramic design. I think it's a very, very difficult, I think, to set up in a small office with your computer and everything, with a sign on the door saying pottery designer, is a pretty close to being, I mean, you might get a lucky break, and you might get a job with a factory, but To operate as a pure freelance designer in the ceramic area, I think it 's extraordinarily difficult, and it would be much better to be operating on a much wider spectrum of, of design and not to be uh, i mean I mean if you go to the World coach of Art now i mean when i was at the World Coach of Art, as Martins explained, you know ceramic design was a big part of what we did. the other year and this is not no disrespect to the rock although I'm still very close to it but I went round there to Grisho and there was something I noticed was there wasn't a single useful product in ceramics there was nothing that you could in an ordinary way use for in a restaurant in your home you couldn't put soup in it you know it might have been an interesting object so that it mean, becomes art,
1: art at that point. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's moved
3: away. I think though that that advice might negate uh, one of the reasons why we both went into it. We've always also expressed to Dave, in that it fascinated us. Yeah, and if it fascinates it. As, I mean, it's easy enough to say, oh, if I was a much wider designer, I'd also, you know, be designing ceramics and also very competitive to Johnny Ive. Um, anybody could say that, but it, it's, you know, if, if you pick up on something that you really want to do, however esoteric it might have become, like you're the only left, last designer of ceramics tableware left in the world... You might have a wonderful position. Yeah, I mean, then, I think you know, well, well.
1: there's also there's also sati- being satisfied and yeah. being commercially successful. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm not saying
2: my argument isn't that it's impossible, uh, but uh, it's going to be very difficult. Damn hard. And also because <laughs> I mean, you could visit. I mean, look, when we started, all the people we wanted to see uh, were in Europe. Now, uh, what do you think? 70% of all the pottery being sold in Europe, despite the uh, prohibitive anti-dumping tariff, is made in China. Mm -hmm. And so if you are a young designer and you want to have your products made, then, and I know people like Lu Zhu is a Chinese a girl who's a friend of mine and she's operating now out of Hong Kong and Shanghai but she has the advantage of A. being trained as a designer B. being Chinese but if you are you know, young Martin Hunt or young Yeah, but
3: but, but somebody could become her partner yes right And no, I mean the thing is the arts people can turn their hands to an amazing range of things in life, which somebody trained as a scientist that doesn't necessarily do. And this is a great thing about the arts. I mean, there's a guy in South London under some railway arches, under the railways. You know, he's got a studio pottery that makes throne tableware. So he can sell throne pe- tableware. I don't know how big and successful a lot of people speak his name. But he's also got a school on two days a week for the locals to come in, you know, gentlemen and ladies who think the idea of pottery is rather a nice thing to do, right? So he's got this school, effectively for amateurs, to come in. Yeah, that's quite... I don't know what piece. he charges them. You know, I mean, Maham's done all sorts of things, you know, to keep her... Um, Talking about Maham, aren't you? Yeah, so so that uh, uh, you you know, you you, they people put together very interesting sets of things until one takes off, Mm -hmm. and so he might in the end be a whole handmade, but he may be a designer, and somebody says, "I like your things, like Maham's terracotta." You know, I mean, terracotta is a classic handmade ceramic thing but peculiarly it's also got a niche which could be a very growing niche in industrial ceramics but you know which way to go so it uh, I, I think that anybody that's really wants to do something should pursue it because uh, yes
2: something will turn up Never be put off by people like me saying
1: how difficult it is. Tell you how difficult it is.
2: Also, I will end on one thing. Emma Bridgewater Mm -hmm. came to see me when she had this idea of starting a pottery. And I think she'd left Cambridge. Mm -hmm. And she told me all about it. And um, I advised her strongly against it. (laughs) So (laughs) maybe maybe there's an exception. Never... The, the, never think that, that what seems
1: impossible
2: necessarily is, because you might achieve
1: it. Uh, on this subject of advice, <clears throat> I turn this back around, and you, you both are very well-known, legendary. You can use that word uh, without overstatement. I'd say it, is fish in a very small puddle. Well, that may be, but are there costs associated with that that sort of, it looks glamorous, it looks wonderful, and it's a beautiful life, and, geez, I, I always, all, if I could just be Martin Hunt, that would be fabulous, and that was all I could dream of. Are there some costs uh, to doing the, to being who? You... No,
3: they're absolutely happy, happy to be doing it. Whether one would have earned more
2: doing something else. I think the truth is, that if you can hang on in there and, uh, I mean, to put it, we were talking about the 80-20 rule. Mm -hmm. I would say 90% of our income comes from about 10, 5% of the products
1: (laughs) we've designed. (laughs) That's always the way. Last question, and I'll start with It's the same question for both of you. Uh, David, um, what would Queensberry have ever been... It, there's a, it's Queensbury and Hunt. Yeah. What would Queensbury have been without Hunt? If Hunt had never come along, what would Queensbury be? Um, I suspect nothing
2: not, not like is successful. I think that I uh, needed Martin. And uh, uh, his skill, I think we worked together. I think what I would probably have ended up is being involved in some pottery. Uh, I mean, I did actually end up being a director of pool pottery, but I mean, uh, of course, to have survived as a manufacturer of pottery would have been extraordinarily unlikely
1: as you look at what happened. Yeah. It's gone through a lot. And Martin, if uh, you'd never run into David Queensbury. You are going to
3: work for Ford, weren't you? (laughs) I actually had a job at Ford offered to me. Uh, Ford was setting up a brand new special design studio in Essex where they've got a factory, Mm -hmm. European factory, in the 60s. Uh, And a nice glass building, and I went along there for an interview. Uh, I don't know, you know, I, I... I probably would have got a job on a factory in Stoke-on-Trent, and
1: I'd gone down with the factory. <laughs> but <laughs> or, I might, but I also or, might be driving a Martin Hunt-designed Ford vehicle.
3: Well, or
1: I could have been, or I might have ditched it all and gone
3: into boat building or something. You know, as long as it was something you know to do with my hands and making mm-hmm. things, which we talked about earlier on. You know, I would have been probably quite happy. What sort of status? In that I might have ever meant got to I who say who could say Um, I mean
2: yeah I mean it's you cannot tell I don't think we could have I think really we couldn't have done what we've done uh, I'm not trying to blow our trumpet
1: without each other It's nice to have that. And, and also to be able to articulate that and I think you've done that very well I've noticed it here we've gone on a little bit longer than I anticipated but it's been fabulous um, uh, uh, now you can compress it yeah <laughs> well we will, we will feel com- free to cut it back a no, bit we will compress it but we won't uh, we won't yeah, take any of the content away I'm, I'm very grateful for your time thank you very much I hope it's okay I've, uh, I've learned a lot today I and I think our time listeners time will as
2: well for a cup of tea
0: Thank you for joining our Beyond the Table podcast series. This series is produced by TabletopJournal.com, where they celebrate the products, people, and places of the hospitality tabletop world. Be sure to check out Tabletop Journal at TabletopJournal.com.